right, we'll go ahead and get started. Thanks for being here for our adult Sunday school. Let's start off this morning with a word of prayer. Father, we thank you for the privilege of being a part of your family, and we recognize how much we stand in need of your Holy Spirit working through all of the saints to build us up in our faith. Thankful that we can gather together in the name of Jesus Christ to hear the word of God, to speak encouraging words, to make friends with God's children, Lord, to offer up our prayers and to sing hymns to your wonderful grace. Uh, we thank you that you've given us this opportunity to learn also about church history. And in the next hour that we spend together in our adult Sunday school, we pray that you would give us wisdom that we can use in living good Christian lives and being discerning in all matters in the church today. We pray for the children downstairs as they uh, enjoy their children's Sunday school, that they would not be hearers only, but that your Holy Spirit would be working in the hearts of the children, that the Word of God would go deep down into their hearts and take root and grow up and bear the fruit of righteousness in their lives that is pleasing to you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so we've been studying through early church history, and in the last few weeks, we've had a special emphasis on the early church heretics and looking at the heroes of the faith who defended Christianity against those early Gnostic heresies. And having spent a couple of weeks on Gnosticism, I don't want to spend the whole sermon today on that subject, uh, the whole lesson today, not really a sermon. But instead, I want to get into the life and ministry of Tertullian, uh, who there, you see, is ministering at the beginning of the, second or the third century AD. So moving forward, another generation in early church history, getting into that early period in the 200s. But before we jump into Tertullian, let's do a quick review of the Gnostic heresy, and in particular, take a look at Marcion of Sinope, if I'm pronouncing that ancient city correctly. I didn't look up its pronunciation. But it was a city in Pontus. Pontus is one of those areas that were originally written to by the Apostle Paul in Galatia as part of that region in the Roman Empire there in Asia Minor. And Marcion, we know a little bit about him personally from those who wrote against him. And so we can kind of stitch together his biography from the church fathers who spent a lot of time refuting the error and the heresies of Marcion. Now, as I told you, Marcion was a Gnostic heretic, but he was a little different than some of the other Gnostics. And one of the differences about him was that he was the son of a bishop. So his father was a pastor, a bishop, as the rise of the monarchical bishop was, was fully uh, in swing at this point in church history. And so they had a single head of the church, uh, similar to some churches today where you find a, a very strong head pastor, and they called him the bishop. And so Marcion's father was a bishop in Sinope and Pontus. And Marcion was born probably around 110 AD, so you know about 15 years after the New Testament was done being written. Marcion is a baby, and his uh, father becomes bishop, and apparently they were a wealthy family. 
And he is described by some as, as being a ship owner. And they were writing that uh, about him about a generation after his death. So that's probably pretty reliable information. Now, we think that Marcion also uh, was a bishop in the church before he became a heretic. Because Marcion, at some point, he moves to Rome. And he wants to become the bishop of the church of Rome. And he kind of ingratiates himself in his initial visit to Rome by a large donation to the church. As I said, he's probably from a wealthy family, a ship owner. And, and so he comes in with this big donation and he's, you know, talking theology with the leaders of the church at Rome. And now their uh, previous bishop has died and Marcion puts himself forward as a candidate to, to be the bishop there. Father was a bishop, you know, I'm, I'm a Christian and all that type of thing. But in talking with Marcion, the uh, leaders of the Church of Rome kind of think there's something not quite right with this guy. And so they pass him over. They don't appoint him as Bishop of Rome. And, and he gets very angry uh, about that. And he's reportedly said, I will divide your church and cause within her a division which will last forever. Uh, he did divide the church and he did create a division that lasted a long time, but not forever. Uh, there's no Marcionites in the world today. Uh, not that I know of. Maybe there's some small little church somewhere that still calls themselves a Marcionite church. Um, but anyway, according to Tertullian, who we're going to be looking at a little bit later, uh, he donated 200,000 sesterces to the church, which is, is about $7,000. And that was a huge sum uh, in those days. I, I'd like to redo those calculations and see, you know, with inflation and all that, what what that would come to in today's dollars. Uh, but the church returned it to him when uh, they uh, found out that he was causing division and causing trouble in the church. Like, we don't need your donation. You can have it back. Now, you remember Polycarp. Polycarp was one of my favorite early Christians. His name means much fruit. Polycarp off much fruit. And Polycarp not only wrote an excellent letter, but also we have a record of his martyrdom where he was very brave and laying down his life for his testimony for Christ. Well, Polycarp uh, visited Rome uh, while Marcion was there. And while Marcion was there in Rome, he demanded that Polycarp and the other leaders of the church recognize him and his group. And he, you know, saw Polycarp in public and he called out and said, do you recognize us? And he recognizes, you know, Christians or whatever. And Polycarp answered back, I recognize you as the firstborn of Satan. Uh, so there's a, some strong refutation going on there from Polycarp against Marcion. I would definitely side with Mars. I would definitely side with Polycarp against Marcion uh, in their conflict and debate. And so I do tend to think that uh, Polycarp was right on in recognizing the satanic origin of Marcion and his teaching. Now, um, Marcion was very successful in organizing his church and starting his church and spreading his church. And it, as I told you, it lasted for centuries. Um, now, Tertullian, our subject for today, he did record uh, early in the 200s, around 207 AD, that Marcion professed repentance on his deathbed. 
and that he was going to try to bring back to the fold those whom he had led astray, but that he died before he was able to really do much on that front. And so it's an interesting possibility that here this arch-heretic, this firstborn of Satan, might have repented on his deathbed, and who knows, maybe you'll find Marcion in heaven, that would be rather odd. Uh, but uh, the grace of God is astounding. It reminds me of a case in the Old Testament with Manasseh. If you're familiar with the ancient kings of Israel, Manasseh was the worst king that uh, the kingdom of Judah ever suffered. And yet the Bible tells us that at the end of his life, he repented. And we may find Manasseh in heaven as an example of the grace of God that saves the chief of sinners. Now, it's also very likely, I would think, that Marcion did not repent on his deathbed and that this is a story that was spread around because Christians liked the idea that he repented and they wanted to try to use that against the Marcionites to say, you know, you should come back to the church because even Marcion repented. Um, so it's possible that this is just a story that's spread around out of kind of wishful thinking and wanting to have uh, a tool to try to draw the Marcionites back into the true church. But we don't know. Uh, it's interesting to think about. And we'll find out someday, probably. Well, I don't want to spend too much time, like I said, on Marcion uh, and his heresies. Um, we've already talked quite a lot about Gnosticism. And I think we've learned most of the lessons that we need from that. Let me just add this. Um, in Irenaeus, in writing on Marcion... Irenaeus wrote his book Against Heresies. We looked at it last week. And he only makes a short mention of Marcion because he then wanted to write a whole book on it. We don't know if he completed that book, but if he did, we don't have it. But uh, this is what Irenaeus wrote about Marcion of Pontus. He said that Marcion of Pontus came after the previous heretic he was talking about. In so doing, he advanced the most daring blasphemy against him who is proclaimed as God by the law and the prophets. So he really spoke against the Old Testament God. And this is something you find in the Gnostics, that they thought that the Old Testament God uh, was, was righteous, but the New Testament God was, was loving and good, and that the Old Testament God was this just God, but the New Testament God was the God of salvation, who was going to uh, bring them out of this evil physical world and, and into the spiritual heaven. And how much this has got parallels with liberalism today, that... Uh, the liberals of today will say, well, the, the God of the Old Testament is the angry God of justice and wrath, but we like the God of the New Testament much better. And they try to set them against each other. And that's exactly what these heretics did. And Marcion uh, was, according to Irenaeus, the one who advanced the most daring blasphemy against the God of the Old Testament, declaring him to be the author of evils, to take, take delight in war, to be infirm of purpose, it changes his mind, and even to be contrary to himself. But Jesus, and this is what Marcion of Pontus taught, Jesus was derived from the Father who was above the God that made the world. And coming into Judea in the times of Pontus, Pilate, Pontius Pilate, the governor, who was the procurator of Tiberius Caesar, was manifested in the form of a man to those who were in Judea. So he's just manifested in the form of a man. He wasn't actually a man. This matter is evil in the Gnostic scheme, right? And that uh, Jesus came to abolish the prophets and the law and all the works of that God who made the world, whom he also called the Cosmocrator, the world maker, Cosmocrator, 
Beside this, he mutilated the gospel, which is uh, according to Luke, removing all that is written respecting the birth of the Lord and setting aside a great deal of the teaching of the Lord in which the Lord is recorded as most dearly confessing that the maker of the universe is his father. He likewise persuaded his disciples that he himself was more worthy of credit than those apostles who have handed down the gospel to us, furnishing them not with the gospel, but merely a fragment of it. In like manner, too, he dismembered the epistles of Paul, removing all that is said by the apostle respecting that God who made the world, to the effect that he is the father of our Lord Jesus Christ, and also those passages from the prophetical writings, which the apostle quotes, in order to teach us that they announced beforehand the coming of the Lord. So anything in Paul's epistles that made Jesus to be the son of the creator was removed uh, by Marcion. And anything in those letters that referred to the Old Testament prophets pointing ahead to Jesus, he removed those from Paul's letters. So Marcion had a truncated canon of the New Testament. Just one gospel, the gospel of Luke, because Luke was a Gentile. And the letters of Paul, uh, but amended in order to fit the uh, Gnostic teaching of Marcion. So, amazing that uh, an error like this could, could take such root. It seems so strange and so foreign to us. But that's the world they lived in, and we are always in danger of believing the lies that are current in our world. We can't look back at previous generations and say, how could they believe such ludicrous things, when our church is believing ludicrous things. And they're just different ludicrous things, and they don't seem as ludicrous to us, because we live in that world, and, and they seem... Uh, plausible, to use Irenaeus's key word. Now, last week I gave you a handout, and on the one side of the handout, I had, uh, I think, an article about the Gospel of Judas. Did I have the, the article about the Gospel of Judas on the other side of the handout? Well, the Gospel of Judas is mentioned in Irenaeus's work, and it's a document that, according to Irenaeus, was produced by a group called the Cainites, another Gnostic heresy. And uh, I just wanted to read you the paragraph on the Cainites from Irenaeus' book Against Heresies. Others, again, declare that Cain derived his being from the power above, so the greater than the, the God who made this world. And so the Old Testament God, he's like saying Cain is a bad guy. But uh, Cain was actually the good guy. And it was just this bad God that was making Cain look like the bad guy. Okay, that was their, uh, that's what they call themselves the Cainites. Um, and they said that Esau, Korah, the Sodomites, and all such persons were a part of their group. And we trace our roots back to the Sodomites. On this account, they add that they have been assailed by the creator. The creator of this world, that evil God, has been you know, attacking us. Um, yet, no one of them has suffered injury, you know, Irenaeus points out. And then he goes on and talks about uh, a couple of other things. But he mentions... They declare that Judas the traitor was thoroughly acquainted with these things. So anybody who's bad in the Bible is good to the Canaanites. And uh, that he alone, out of all the disciples, knew the truth about Jesus as no one else did. And that uh, Judas, uh, therefore, wrote down uh, these things. And they produced a fictitious history, which they styled the Gospel of Judas. And I assume that's the same Gospel of Judas that uh, we've uncovered and... Uh, printed and that the world likes to say, oh, look, there's this other view of Christianity, and maybe they were right, and who's to say uh, which, which view of Christianity was the right view? Well, it is obvious to anyone who wants to know the truth. All right, if you've got your Bibles with you, open up to Romans chapter 3. 
As I told you, the early church was very proficient, uh, very excellent in their refutation of Gnostic heretics. And we have men like Irenaeus, men like Justin Martyr, men like Tertullian and others, Epiphanius, who wrote very well against the Gnostics and recognized that heresy and refuted it. However, the early church was not as good at dealing with more subtle false teaching that arose within the church. These splinter groups that carried people away, they were good at debating and, and dis discussing their doctrines. But within the church, there was a corruption of biblical doctrine happening as well. And one of the corruptions that I already talked about this morning was the rise of the monarchical bishop. That church government was moving away from what Jesus and the apostles had taught and exemplified and was moving towards more of a hierarchical type of, of government, which is prone to a lot of problems that we'll see as uh, church history continues on from this point. But not only in the area of ecclesiology was doctrine degrading, but also, most importantly, the, the doctrine of salvation was itself degrading in the early church. We see elements of this from a, a very early time period, from the earliest documents that we have outside of the New Testament, that there was a confusion among a number of Christians who were considered to be a part of the true church, the apostolic church, on the nature of saving faith and how works factor in with that. Just like today, we've got confusion in the church on salvation by grace or salvation by works. And so we see that confusion in the early church and that confusion sadly gets worse. And our example today of Tertullian is, is one of the examples of a man who did not understand grace, but instead really taught what I would consider to be a works gospel. And I, I don't even know if I think that Tertullian was saved. Uh, because of, of how off he is on some of these most important doctrines. And so we're going to look into Tertullian and, and learn a little bit about his life and his teaching. As we look into church history, we're doing this because we want to not just learn history, but we want to examine doctrine and how to discern truth from error. And hopefully as we do that, this will be a, a pastoral study, a biblical study, where we can be critical of someone, we can praise them, and learn what God wants us to learn from their example. Now I had you open up to Romans chapter 3, because Romans chapter 3, verses 21 to 26, are as, most likely, as I have said before, the, the most important verses in the Bible. These are foundational key verses to understanding the very heart of the matter of salvation. And here Paul puts it all together in one paragraph, laying out for us how it is that God justifies sinners, which is of extreme importance to sinners, as we are. How can we be right with God and be declared just in his courtroom? And so I wanted to read this here for you before we jump into Tertullian to kind of give us a baseline uh, by which to judge the things that Tertullian is going to say. You can follow along in your Bibles. I'll, I'll read the paragraph starting in verse 21. But now, the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. See, so Marcion probably likes that part, apart from the law. But he doesn't like that part where it says, the law and the prophets bear witness to it. He's like, cross that out, cut that out. Um, so, the law doesn't provide us a gift of righteousness, but the law and the prophets bear witness to this 
this righteousness of God that is a gift to us. And that's what he says in verse 22. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. So by faith in Jesus Christ, the righteousness of God is given to us. Paul says, for there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift. A grace gift is how we are justified through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. So the grace gift comes through Christ Jesus because Christ Jesus is the one who has paid the price. That word redemption is to pay a price in order to save something from being lost. It's used in pawn shops. You go back to the pawn shop and you redeem the item that you have uh, left at the pawn shop. Uh, Otherwise, it's lost to you. If you don't go and redeem it, if you don't go buy it back, then the pawn shop's going to sell it to somebody else and you lose it. Uh, So this, this purchase price is in Jesus Christ. That's where the word redemption comes in. And then it says, to further clarify, how is this redemption, how is this purchase price made by Christ Jesus? It says, God put him forward as a propitiation by his blood. Who can tell me what the word propitiation means? Word we don't use a lot outside of Christian circles, but it's a very important word. Yes, uh, propitiation is a substitutionary sacrifice that atones for sin. Propitiation is a satisfaction of the justice of God. So all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. God being a just God, he must punish sin. If God chose not to punish your sin just because he felt like, you know, I like you, I don't want to punish you, then he would be unjust to punish anyone else's sin. He has to treat everyone Fairly, he has to treat everyone equally. So if you're a sinner, and you're a sinner, and I'm a sinner, we our sin must be punished. And God has made it clear that he is able to punish a substitute, a sacrifice in our place. And that's what Jesus Christ has done. He has been put forward by God and willing in the will willingly in, in God's plan to be the Lamb of God, the one who is the substitute for our sins. And that's a grace gift. This is the redemption. It's a propitiation by his blood because the penalty for sin is death. And so the death of Christ, the pouring out of his blood, is what pays for our sins. Very important to to make that clear and to have that understanding. This is the very heart of the gospel. But notice what it says after that. To be received by faith. So the, the sacrifice has been made. And it is sufficient for the salvation of all of mankind. But it is only effectively applied to those who believe. And so by faith in Jesus Christ, the sacrifice of Christ is applied to the individual. Okay? So faith is the instrumental means of salvation. But the ground of salvation, the very fountain of salvation itself, is the blood of Christ. You follow me? And it says, this was to show God's righteousness, because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time, this, I like this last phrase, so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. If God is going to justify you, you're going to stand before God's court and he's going to say, Robert, 
you are guiltless. You are blameless in my sight. That is only possible for God to do if your sin has been atoned for by the blood of Christ. There's no other sacrifice. There's no other way to pay for your sin unless you pay for it yourself than the sacrifice of Christ. And when you believe in Christ, you receive that benefit. You receive that gift of God's grace and that divine righteousness in God's court. So Romans 3, 21 through 26 are the most full and succinct statement of the gospel in the Bible, although it's talked about everywhere. You can't go hardly anywhere in the New Testament without hearing about the death of Christ for sins, the blood of Christ, uh, the forgiveness of sins by God's grace, and all of that. However, if you read through all of Tertullian's works, which we have quite a number of them left to us, and I didn't read them all carefully, I skimmed them, but in all my scanning of Tertullian's works, I couldn't find any reference to the, the blood of Christ, the death of Christ, the substitutionary sacrifice of Christ. Tertullian talks a lot about repentance and good works, doesn't talk about the blood of Christ, doesn't talk about the sacrifice of Christ. Now, maybe he's just taking it for granted, but that's not a good thing to do either. But from his writings, as you'll see, it seems like the doctrines of grace were being lost by the church. And Tertullian is an example of one part of the church and one strain of thinking within that church that was straying far from the doctrines of Paul concerning grace. Now, about a century later, we're going to find Augustine coming onto the scene. And Augustine also ministered in North Africa where Tertullian is ministering. And when Augustine comes and he's preaching what we just read about, that we're saved by grace through faith, that we're totally depraved in our sin, and it's only by the sacrifice of Christ that we can be justified, people accuse Augustine of inventing these doctrines. They're like, in the church, they're like, Augustine, where'd you get this stuff? This isn't what the church teaches. This isn't what the church believes. And they had lost so much the doctrines of grace by Augustine's time that, that they didn't know where this stuff came from. It's pretty sad. Uh, and I, I blame Tertullian for part of that, but not just Tertullian, the, the teachers of Tertullian. Because as far as we know, Tertullian was not a pastor. He was not a bishop. He was a, uh, an apologist. He was a writer. He was a scholar. He was a, a defender of the faith. And we think that he was probably a lawyer before he became a Christian. Tertullian didn't become a Christian until the middle of his life. And he lived a, a very immoral life before he became a Christian. And then after he became a Christian... He continued to uh, write like a lawyer. And you read through his writings and they're kind of difficult to read because he kind of talks in lawyerese. I had to look up a lot of words that he was using, kind of legal terminology that I'm not familiar with. And it helps if you read it out loud and if you kind of read it in like an a angry debating voice that you would use you know, in, in the courtroom. And then it starts to make a little bit more sense. So the... the Biographers of Tertullian say that you know, he was born to be a debater, and he loved to debate. And for the first half of his life, he was a, a pagan. Now, when I say pagan, I don't just use that word colloquially. I'm using it according to its historical definition. A pagan was somebody who worshipped the Greek and Roman gods and the polytheistic system of the, the ancient Roman Empire. And so he had shared the pagans' prejudices against Christianity, and he looked at them as, as foolish and immoral and, and all of that type of thing while he himself was living in immorality. 
But he probably got converted around 197 AD and then started writing and defending uh, Christianity. And he's one of those guys like Paul that, you know, he was very intense before his conversion and he's very intense after his conversion. His personality remained the same. Uh, he just uh, changed sides, so to speak. Now, one of the things that is notable about Tertullian is that he is the first of the early church fathers, as they are called, even though that's not how we're supposed to refer to the church leaders. Uh, he was one of the first to write in Latin. And so the Western church that is you know, eventually led by the Bishop of Rome and who becomes called the Pope of Rome and all of that, they drew a lot from Tertullian's writings because he was one of the first to write in Latin instead of writing in Greek. The New Testament had been written in Greek. Uh, the early, uh, you know, lingua franca of the Roman Empire was Greek. But Greek was becoming less and less common, especially in the western part of the empire. And Latin was replacing it more. And Latin was the, the language native to Rome and the Romans. And so the, the Greek influence was waning and the, the Latin influence was increasing. So he chose to write in Latin. And that kind of gives him probably a little bit more historical significance than he would have had if he had written in Greek, in the Western church in particular. Now, there's things I like about Tertullian, don't, don't get me wrong. I, I think that uh, he had some very good insights on a number of subjects. But people are a mixed bag, and we have to try to be objective and, and take them as they are, not how we want them to be. But one of the things that Tertullian is most well known for is the statement that has come down to us is that the, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. Have you ever heard that? The blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. And that's not precisely how he said it, but that's how it's come down to us in English. If you wanted to do a, an actual translation of his Latin, he wrote this in his apologetics book. The more often we are mown down by you, the more in number we grow. The blood of the Christians is seed. So you go out and you mow down uh, the weeds, you know, and, and you haven't gotten rid of the weeds. So you've just spread the seeds around and they grow up more and more. And so, uh, or, you know, it doesn't have to be weeds. It could be grass. Let's, let's uh, change it to grass because that's more uh, conducive to Christians who are, are good and not bad. So you go out and, you know, the, the grass has grown to seed and you mow it. And that just spreads the seeds around and you end up getting more grass. And so that's what Tertullian said. The more that the Romans mow us down, killing us in the Colosseum and burning us as torches and all that type of thing, the more we grow. And so he had some, some insightful arguments against the pagans and for the Christians, and we appreciate that. One of the things that he pointed out about Christians as opposed to the pagans is that the, the pagans, they criticized Christians for not worshiping Caesar as a god. This is called worshiping the genius of Caesar. And so Tertullian wrote, we do not swear by the genius of Caesar, but we are loyal and we pray for him. Whereas you pagans revolt. Caesar does not want to be a god. He prefers to be alive. So you know, we don't burn incense to Caesar and, and swear by the genius of Caesar, but at least we're not you know, killing Caesars and setting up new governments. Uh, we are loyal subjects of whatever Caesar is there. And so you can have your choice. You can have people who pretend to worship you as a god, but then are going to stab you in the back and replace you with someone else. 
Or you can have people who recognize that you're just a man, but who will not stab you in the back and replace you with someone else. So that was a great argument in favor of the Christians as well. I also like what Tertullian wrote regarding fulfilled prophecy as evidence for the faith. This is an area where I think we need more development as a Christian church. I think our apologetics focus too much on rational arguments from the physical world and just from human reason. And I think we need to focus once again on the evidence of fulfilled prophecy that is so often given to us in scripture. I don't know why apologists tend to ignore that so much, but the early church didn't. And this is what Tertullian said. He said, we have a testimony, he adds, from our sacred books, which are older than all of your gods. Fulfilled prophecy is the proof that they are divine. So how do we know this book is divine? Well, the fulfilled prophecy that is in the book. And so I appreciate his emphasis on that. Now, Tertullian did write a book, uh, actually five books against Marcion, and we have those, and it's one of our most useful sources of knowledge of the Marcionite heresy. And this is what he writes, uh, what Tertullian writes regarding the, the rule of faith, as he call, calls it. He says, we have a rule of faith that we can all agree on as genuine Christians in the church, and this is what the heretics don't agree with. And so I wanted to read his rule of faith here. It says this. This is what we defend. If you want to know what we believe, this is it. There's only one God, and he is none other than the creator of the world, who produced all things out of nothing from his own word, first of all sent forth, and that this word, the first of all that was sent forth, the, the one through whom he created the world, this, world is called his, this word is called his son. And under the name of God was seen in diverse ways by the patriarchs. They were heard at all times by, he was heard, the word was heard at all times in the prophets. And at last brought down by the spirit and power of the father into the Virgin Mary, who was made flesh in her womb. And being born of her, went forth as Jesus Christ. There, thenceforth he preached the new law, interesting, the new law, and the new promise of the kingdom of heaven. He worked miracles, having been crucified. He rose again the third day. Then, having ascended into the heavens, he sat at the right hand of the Father, sent instead of himself the power of the Holy Ghost to lead such as believe. He will come with glory to take the saints to the enjoyment of everlasting life and of the heavenly promises and to condemn the wicked to everlasting fire after the resurrection of both these classes shall have happened, together with the restoration of their flesh." a bodily, physical resurrection in contradistinction to the Gnostics. This rule, as it will be proved, was taught by Christ and raised amongst ourselves, raises amongst ourselves no other questions than those which heresies introduce and which make men heretics. So he's good on the Trinity. Uh, the Catholic Encyclopedia likes his writings on the Trinity. And that's one area where we do agree with the Catholics on the doctrine of the Trinity. And... One thing also that is notable about Tertullian is that he was one of those guys in the early church who decided that it was a bad idea to bring in any pagan literature into the church for education. He was against bringing any philosophy from Plato or Aristotle or the Cynics or any other group and trying to incorporate that into Christian thinking. This is in strong contradistinction to the school of thought that we find in Alexandria. 
Alexandria is also in northern Africa and the other side of northern Africa. And there we have Origen and also his teacher, his name doesn't come to me at the moment, Clement, Clement of Alexandria, who did enjoy taking ideas from Greek philosophy and, and incorporating them into Christian theology and to show that the, the Greeks were not completely off in everything that they thought, but that some of their thought could be correlated or integrated with Christian thought. And so when I was in seminary, I went to a seminary where they were uh, very strong about not incorporating secular thinking into Christianity, that they really liked Tertullian because he wrote very passionately against incorporating non-Christian learning into Christianity. Uh, however, you can't just judge someone by one position that they take. That, that's, that's one element out of a, a whole complex of thought. And while I'm largely in agreement, and I, I see the dangers of bringing in secular thinking and trying to baptize it into the Christian church or to, to reconcile Christian thinking with pagan thought, and I think that the school of Alexandria caused a lot of problems because of how they didn't do that, or they didn't do it well, or they shouldn't have done it at all, or however you want to look at that. Then at the same time, when I read Origen and Clement of Alexandria, I feel more connected with them than I do with Tertullian, because Tertullian just does not understand grace. And, and so there's different issues, and, and people are a mixture. And so you might go to one congregation and say, well, I really like this about this church, but this over here concerns me. You might go to another church and have you know, different things that you like and are concerned about, because we are all a mix of these ideas, and we're trying to, to get to the truth, and so Tertullian, to me, is a kind of a tragic example of someone who, in some ways, I'm like, yes, great job. But in other ways, it's like, ooh, that's really bad. Um, and I don't quite know, you know what to make of all of these people. But if you were to ask me, who is I more likely to meet in heaven? My heart tells me I, I'm probably more likely to find origin there than Tertullian. Um, now... The Catholics love Tertullian for a number of reasons, but at the same time, they also have things about him that quite bother them. And he's not canonized as a saint in the Catholic Church because later in his life, Tertullian leaves kind of the, the main flow of the Orthodox Christian Catholic Church at that time and joins kind of a splinter group called the Montanists. And so I want to tell you a little bit about the Montanists in the time that we have left to us here today. Now, Montanism was named after a guy named Montanus. And Montanism was originally called the New Prophecy. And the New Prophecy was different from the Old Prophecy in this. When you read the early church fathers, you get the idea that prophecy was continuing even after the apostles died in the you know, second century of the church. And that... Prophecy, as the mainstream of Christianity in that time understood it, was a, a gift, like Paul wrote about in 1 Corinthians, where the speaker had self-control. The speaker was in control of himself and was not in some kind of ecstatic trance. Uh, Paul writes that the spirits of prophets are subject to prophets, 
when he's writing about this subject in 1 Corinthians 14, which is probably the most important chapter in the New Testament on the subject. <clears throat> but the new prophecy was ecstatic. The, the speaker would kind of go into a trance and, and say things that were supposed to be coming from the Holy Spirit. And Montanus and his two cohorts, which is kind of a loaded term, but oh well, I'll reveal my bias. Uh, his cohorts, uh, his, these two women, Maxima and Priscilla, if I remember their names correctly, they, they were the leaders of this new prophetic movement. And we don't have a lot of their own group's writings on the subject, from, but from what their critics write about them, it seems like they believe that their prophecies were as authoritative and as uh, binding as the New Testament itself. And so if you disobeyed what the new prophets were saying, then you were disobedient to Christ and God. And so the church at first didn't quite know what to do with Montanus and his followers. And it seemed like even the church at Rome at first was kind of taking a moderating position and saying, well, you know, they're orthodox in their view of Jesus and God and they're not Gnostic heretics and yet they've got this, this new, you know, pneumatology and this new spirit of prophecy among them. And, and so we'll just kind of take a wait and see approach to it. But over time, the church was like, mm, no, this isn't working for us. Uh, and, and more and more people rejected it. But Tertullian did not. Tertullian started to really take an interest in this group because, it's hard to say exactly, I think people are complex, but it seems pretty clear that one of the main reasons Tertullian was attracted to this was because Tertullian, as we see in his writings, was very rigorous and, you might say, legalistic, according to you know, how we use the term today, in his approach to Christianity. Just as today, there's differences in opinion as to exactly what Christian behavior is supposed to look like, how much we're supposed to be in the world and not of the world. And, and Tertullian, he was one of those guys that was like, nothing, no worldliness at all in the church. He wrote a long tractate on why Christians should not go to the theater and Christians should not go to the Colosseum and these types of things. And so he was a rigorous moralist in his Christianity. And these Montanists were also very, very rigorous, and they loved making up new rules. They were making up new rules all the time. You know, now the Holy Spirit says you can't do this. Now the Holy Spirit says instead of fasting two days a week, you've got to fast four days a week. I mean, you Christians fast, but us Montanists, we're really serious about fasting, and we're much more spiritual than you. And so the, this, this extreme moralism really appealed to uh, Tertullian's nature, and so he uh, got caught up with this group, and that's why the Catholic Church doesn't recognize him as a saint, because eventually Montanus and his followers were, were seen as heretics, and therefore, while they like a lot of things he said, they also cannot fully support Tertullian. Now, I'm not going to spend too much time on Montanism, because it's fascinating as it is, We've got other things that I want to talk about that are, to me, more important. And so I wanted to share with you some of what Tertullian wrote about baptism and repentance. Because this gets back to the heart of the gospel, like I was talking about there in Romans chapter 3. And as you read about Tertullian's views of baptism and repentance, it doesn't seem like he has a biblical understanding of those things. And that he is defending uh, baptismal regeneration and he's defending repentance as not only like 
an aspect of faith in our salvation, but, but really the moral price that is paid uh, by the sinner in order to receive forgiveness. So you're saved on the grounds of repentance rather than on the grounds of the blood of Christ. Instead of repentance and faith being the means by which you receive salvation, uh, the way that Tertullian writes about it, he really seems like he's saying it's the ground. And maybe, you know, if you pressed him on it and he was talking about a different subject, he would sound better. Maybe he gets carried away in his arguments, and sometimes that happens. People will be talking about one subject, and they're trying to prove their point, and they prove it a little bit too much, and end up saying things that aren't actually true. That's possible. We want to be gracious. Uh, God knows the heart, but I want to warn you against some of the, the, the tendencies that we see here in Tertullian. He writes this on the necessity of baptism for salvation. He says, When the prescript is laid down, that without baptism, salvation is attainable by none. So apparently in uh, North Africa and the church here, that the church had this, this prescript, this uh, statement of their doctrine, that without baptism, salvation is attainable by none. And he defends this by saying that this is on the ground of the declaration of the Lord, who says, unless one is born of water, he hath not life. Uh, John chapter 3, you have to be born of water and spirit. Uh, well, it's a little bit unclear what exactly the Lord means in John chapter 3 about being born of water. And there's a lot of different discussion and debate on that topic. And you don't want to ground uh, such an important doctrine as this on a passage that is not exactly clear. But you use the, the more clear passages to help us understand issues like this. But anyway, uh, that's the text that he says is the chief support for salvation uh, only being available to those who are baptized. And in writing, he's, he's responding to other Christians who are saying that you don't have to be baptized to be saved, but you're saved by faith, and that baptism is a command of the Lord, but that'd be my position. So he's arguing against my position that baptism is a command, we're supposed to do it as an act of obedience, but we're not saved by baptism, we're saved by faith, as we read there in Romans chapter 3. Now, he lists some of the objections to baptism being necessary for salvation and tries to refute them. So I want to read this paragraph. He says this. Here then, those miscreants, that's referring to me, I'm a miscreant, uh, provoke questions. And so they say, baptism is not necessary for them to whom faith is sufficient for this reason. Abraham pleased God by a sacrament of no water. So he would say, how was Abraham saved? Well, you can actually find that argument here in Romans chapter 4, right after what we read in Romans chapter 3, that Abraham did not need to be circumcised in order to be saved, but he was saved, and then he received the sign of his faith, the circumcision, but it's faith that saved him. And so I'm a miscreant, I come along and, and make Paul's argument that you know, Abraham wasn't baptized, and so baptism can't be necessary for salvation. Well, he's going to refute that, so let's, let's see what he says. He says, but in all cases, it is the later things which have a conclusive force, and the subsequent which shall prevail over the antecedent. Grant that, in days gone by, there was a salvation by means of bare faith. All right, so back in Abraham's day, he could be saved just by faith. Uh, but that was then. This is now, is his argument. This is the later thing, which has more conclusive force. Um, but now that faith has been enlarged, 
And now we have a, a more full revelation of what we're supposed to believe. I think that's what he means by faith has been enlarged. And has become a faith which believes in his nativity, passion, and resurrection. There has been amplification added with the sacrament. That is the sealing act of baptism. The clothing, in some sense, of the faith which before was naked and which cannot exist now without its proper law. Well, law. Okay, he's really big on law. For the law of baptizing has been imposed. And the formula prescribed, go, he saith, teach the nations, baptizing them into the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. The comparison with this law of that definition, unless a man be reborn of water and spirit, he shall not enter the kingdom of heaven, has tied faith to the necessity of baptism. Now, if I was able to argue with uh, Tertullian, I would say, well, of course, faith is tied to baptism. But let's be clear that it's faith that saves you and not the act of baptism that saves you. And if somebody believes in Christ and dies before they're able to be baptized, they're going to heaven because we're saved by faith. And baptism is the sign, the outward sign, just is parallel with Abraham in the Old Testament. So uh, he also refutes the argument that is still made today. Interesting, the more things change, the more they stay the same. I've heard preachers use this argument on why water baptism is not necessary for salvation. He says this, they also roll back an objection from the apostle Paul himself, where Paul said, Christ has not sent me to baptize. As if by using this argument, baptism were done away. You see here, what a, a clever debater does, which is not right, but so often happens, is he builds a straw man to argue against. Uh, those who say that baptism is not necessary for salvation aren't saying that we're getting rid of baptism. We're not doing away with baptism. We're just saying it's not necessary for salvation. So he, he's just changed our position to argue against a straw man. Now he's saying we're trying to do away with baptism, which is not what we're doing. For if so, he continues, if we were supposed to understand that Christ sent me not to baptize means that we do away with baptizing. If so, then why did Paul baptize Gaius and Crispus and the house of Stephanus, which you can read about there in uh, Paul's letter to the Corinthians. However, even if Christ had not sent him to baptize, yet he had given him, given other apostles the precepts to baptize. So even if Paul wasn't sent to baptize, the other apostles were sent to baptize. So, you know, baptism is necessary. Um, and he says, seeing that, uh, but these words were written to the Corinthians in regard to the circumstances of that particular time. Okay, so only relevant to them in that particular time. Don't try to use it as an argument now. Uh, so he's doing away with the relevance of this text, right? And he says, seeing that schisms and dissensions were agitated among them, while one attributes everything to Paul, another to Apollos, for which reason the peacemaking apostles, for fear he should seem to claim all gifts for himself, says that he had been sent not to baptize, but to preach. For preaching is the prior thing, baptizing the later thing. Therefore, the preaching came first. But I think baptizing withal was lawful to him who preaching was. I'd say, of course, baptism was lawful to him who was preaching. Uh, Paul can baptize, and he did baptize. I'm not saying that Paul didn't baptize and that baptism was wrong. So again, he he's just makes an argument against a position that is not our position. And the, the right way to handle this is not to try to use scripture to say what you want or to put aside which parts you want to put aside. 
the, the proper attitude is to have a respect for Scripture and say, what is the correct implication of Paul's statement that Christ did not send me to baptize? And just use your logic, just use your reasoning. If baptism was necessary, absolutely necessary for salvation, then how could Paul ever say those words? Right? If Paul loves the gospel, Paul's devoted his life to the gospel, if baptism was the means of receiving salvation, how could the apostle to the Gentiles say, Christ has not sent me to baptize? Right? So we, we're not trying to, to use the text to support our position. We're trying to honestly come to the text and say, what is the logical consequence of what is written? Now, there's always going to be disagreements, there's always going to be debates, and we're always going to be looking at things from our own perspective. But through humility, through love, through respect for Scripture, through love for one another, we should be able to make progress. And I, I find it regretful that the spirit of Tertullian was, was not conducive to that progress because of his ardent nature, to, to put it as one biographer did. Um, now, he's got a lot of interesting things to write about baptism, like what do you do with kids? At what age is it right to baptize people? And other things like that. But let me share you a little bit also in the last minute about what he shares, what he writes on repentance. Because right? he's also very misleading on his writing concerning the subject of repentance. Now, you know me. I'm a preacher of repentance, right? I don't, I don't hold back on preaching repentance, but I don't preach it like this. This is the bad way to preach repentance. He says... Moreover, a presumptuous confidence in baptism introduces all kinds of vicious delay and tergiversation, if I'm saying that word right, with regard to repentance. For feeling sure of undoubted pardon of their sins, men meanwhile steal the intervening time and make it for themselves into a holiday time for sinning. So here what he's saying is, some people, they think that baptism is just this magical act, that once you're baptized, you're saved, and you can go on sinning. And, and he's saying, no, 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 that's, that's not what we're teaching. He's, Tertullian is teaching, you have to be baptized, and you also have to live a very moral, righteous life, which is repentance, uh, in order to be saved. And this is what then he says about repentance. He says, further... How inconsistent it is to expect pardon of sins to be granted to a repentance which, have not, which, which they have not fulfilled. This is to hold your hand out for merchandise, but not produce the price. For repentance is the price at which the Lord has determined to award pardon. Eww, that's a bad way to say it. He says, repentance is the price at which the Lord has determined to award pardon. Repentance is not the price. The price is the blood of Christ. The price is the death of Christ. You don't want to confuse the redemption that is in Christ's blood with our act of repentance. I'm not saved by my repentance. I'm saved by Christ and his death for sins. Now, the way I receive it is by holding out my hand. But in my hand, no price I bring, right? Simply to thy cross I cling. But he's saying, no, when you're repenting, that's when you are paying the price. So in one hand, you've got, oh, here's my repentance, God. And then you've got your other hand asking for pardon. No, that's not how you come to God. Um, you come to God and say, there's nothing I can do. My repentance isn't going to save me. My repentance isn't going to justify me. 
But by faith in Christ, we do repent of our sins, and we do have this new birth, this new life of, of no longer walking in our former ways, but following Christ. But your following of Christ in no way purchases pardon. Let me say that again. Your following of Christ in no way purchases pardon. The purchase is only the blood of Christ. Your following of Christ is just an act of faith. And it's by faith that God saves and justifies as a gift, a grace gift, not a purchase that we make. Um, so that gives you some idea of the mixed bag that we find here in Tertullian. A man who was considered to be a part of the true church, the true faith, and yet wandered away into a splinter group that eventually was designated as heretical, and who also at the same time taught many doctrines that become core and key to the Catholic Church and their understanding of salvation by baptism and salvation by works. So a very interesting fellow, and uh, one that is at a key crossroads in the thinking of the church in a number of ways. Well, that's enough on Tertullian. Next week, we'll take a look at origin of Alexandria and see this other school of thought. And we'll take a closer look at that subject of how is the church supposed to relate to the thinking of non-Christian philosophers and thinkers? And can we integrate non-Christian thought together with Christian theology and philosophy? All right. Thank you.